Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. This is 1039 LI News Radio. Hi, welcome to Breaking It Down. Our very special guest is Michael Johns. Michael is an author and he's had uh, quite a career in government and, uh, and certainly in politics. Uh, Michael, how are you? Good. How are you, Frank? Good. Uh, what do you like to refer you, to yourself as? You've done quite a few things. When people say, well, what do you do? Uh, give us give us your definition of that. Well, that's kind of an interesting question because, I mean, I've sort of had about half of my career in public policy and government, about another ha- equal half in um, private sector and uh, executive management capacities. So um, I guess for better or worse, I haven't been really singularly defined, but I've tried to stay active in anything and everything that matters, now, which usually is covered in both of those fields. Now, uh, what do you uh, what do you prefer? You, did you prefer working in the private sector over over uh, the public sector? I uh, enjoyed and enjoyed both for varying reasons. Um, from the standpoint of public policy and government, I mean, I have always felt and I continue to believe that it really isn't common upon the American people to become engaged uh, in a constructive way um, with issues of our day. That, that not doing so can really be a recipe for uh, terrible disasters, has been historically uh, in this country and, and around the world. Uh, so it's out of a sense of obligation, really, that I uh, embarked on that course. And from the standpoint of the private sector, um, which I also have and continue to greatly enjoy, I think it's really an issue of, you know, my consciously really not wanting to become another creature of the Beltway that has never really done anything off of, you know, the public dime or away from government. I think it's important for for individuals that are engaged in public policy to have, uh, you know, worked in and continue to work in private sector capacities. And so I sort of consciously uh, in the mid-1990s took some steps in that direction. Now, you were a speechwriter for George Herbert Walker Bush, am I right? Correct, yes. Yeah, now, how was that experience? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's an amazing experience. I mean, you know, there's only a few dozen presidential speechwriters alive, so it's a fairly elite club. Um, the work is incredibly significant. I think, um, you know, in, it, when you look back in hindsight, you really realize how significant it, 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 it was. I mean, things happen at such a fast pace that you're probably not conscious of it at the time. But uh, really an incredible honor and uh, and joy and a very, you know, taxing responsibility in the sense that I think, as everyone knows, any word uttered by the president of the United States really has the ability to uh, have profound effects, uh, financial market effects, um political effects, geopolitical effects, national security effects. So, you know, it becomes a a very sensitive um, and yet critically important uh, function of modern government, which is one of the reasons that uh, presidents have relied on professionals for the last, you know, certainly since Kennedy administration, even before then, uh, to uh, craft important words. Now, I've heard I've heard. A lot of great things about uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, President, that President Bush, and and certainly uh, Mrs. Bush, that uh, what they were like, how uh, how warm, how friendly. Is, is that accurate, or is that just it is accurate? Yes, no yeah. doubt it's accurate. I mean, these are uh, genuinely um, philanthropic, uh, giving, caring people 
Um, and in the case of uh, former President Bush, uh, I think a leader that was drawn to public service out of a sense of obligation, commitment, and patriotism to the country, um, he certainly uh, could have had a much easier career path uh, without the um, you know criticism, controversy, uh, you know, sacrificed earnings even. Uh, so I think, you know, you know, in a lot of respects, uh, his career is a hugely admirable one. And I think, uh, you know, someone I was very proud and then very proud to have had an affiliation with. Uh, did you ever run into Sig, uh, um, Sig Rogich? Do you know who that is? He spent, no. he spent some time in the uh, in the administration, in the uh, Reagan administration uh, as well. But Sig Rogich uh, was an ambassador under uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. But he was kind of around uh, the Lee Atwaters of the world and, and, and the Bakers and, and folks like that. Uh, just a reminder to folks that are just tuning in now, Michael Johns is our special guest. And he used to be a speechwriter. He was once a speechwriter for George Herbert Walker Bush. And he has spent a, a tremendous amount of time in, in public and private sector. He's a very interesting man and, uh, you know, has a book and has written, you know, qu quite a bit uh, more than just that book. And um, thrilled to have you here, Michael. Thrilled to have you. Thank here. you. Now, was Sig Rogich the, was he the, um, was he the one who was close to Sinatra and, Yep. Mike Tyson. Yeah. Yeah, okay. that was it. Yeah, it, I, do, I do recall. I do recall. And I think he was very close to Roger Ailes, who, of course, uh, has gone on to be uh, to run Fox News. So, yeah, that is a familiar name. Yeah, Rogich is uh, it, certainly an interesting character. He's, he's someone I certainly call a friend. He's from Vegas, and he is uh, he's he's very close to, to Harry Reid. And he's a Republican, right. big-time Republican, but he's very, very close to Harry Reid, the, the majority leader. And, he's from from Las Vegas, as I recall, right? Yes, yeah, he's from uh, I think Henderson, uh, which is you know. And I think he was ambassador to uh, Iceland, was uh, it? Or, uh, that's it. Yeah, I think Iceland. Yeah, very good, Iceland. Yeah, he was Icelandic uh, ambassador, but he's he's an amazing guy, and he's you know I look at at his resume and I look at your resume and I say, geez, you know, the, these guys are really <laughs> these guys really do something. Well, look when you when you get into a position where you're where you're writing speeches for the most powerful man in the world, and I don't care if that's that you know, former the late President Nixon or uh, or, or current President Obama, uh, you're in you know, like you said, you're in special company there, and it is uh, very very important. Uh, what uh, what speeches can you point to that we might know that you uh, that you chimed in on? Well, I, I mean, firstly, I think like most living speechwriters, we consciously always say that the uh, the words of the president really are the words of the president, you know. So yeah, I got you. Uh, I I was always, uh, and I think most living speechwriters are uh, very quick not to, uh, to try to take credit for particular speeches. I mean, there's one or two living speechwriters who have been quick to do that, but it's not really <laughs> right. well looked upon. But I will say, you know, just to to give you some answers that you know I wrote addresses in the Rose Garden. I wrote political speeches that were given around the country. I wrote speeches that were given for visiting foreign dignitaries. I gave, um, I contributed to, uh, you know, State of the Unions and, and other uh, major uh, political addresses. So, you know, really, um, there was no particular division of labor as it related to expertise or topic. And uh, we all tackled a lot of uh, um, diverse types of venues and uh, speaking engagements. Well, I think that's honorable. I, I think that's re it's really honorable that uh, that that people keep that uh, that confidence. 
um, you know, to sit there and say, oh, I said that. You see what he said? Yeah, I said that. It almost makes it like the president's a puppet. And, you know, we, you know, we are going to tell the president what to do. And I, we all know that's not the case. And the, and the president, uh, president, whether it's Obama or whether it's, uh, you know, Nixon or Ford or whatever. I mean, they, they certainly they got there for a reason. And yeah, exactly. I mean, as they say, I mean, you really serve at the pleasure of the president. Uh, it's an honor to be there. And, um, you know, it's it's not uh, a position that uh, many Americans ever have an opportunity to come close to. And, you know, while you're there, it's my strong belief, and I think it's the strong belief of those who've gone through White House positions that, um, you know, you owe that affiliation to the president of the United States. And you owe, you know, your contributions really and the work that you've done to the greatness of the country. And um, the themes I wrote about were hugely important ones and ones that were, you know, really at a, at a groundbreaking time, a, a historical time, uh, with the end of the Cold War and uh, the whole shifting global paradigm. Um, and, you know, you're uh, fortunate really to be at the uh, that sort of witness point of history. Now, what year did you start with President Bush? Uh, I was there for the last year of the administration, which was uh, 92 to 93. So when I came in, um, the political season was already fairly uh, developed. Um, There was a lot of internal concern that um, President Bush was facing a very difficult reelection cycle. The um, agenda of the administration was being criticized by both liberals and conservatives. Uh, some of the uh, diehard loyalists in the party had been uh, concerned that the president had uh, purportedly abandoned his no new taxes pledge. And, you know, there was a lot it was just a lot of sensitivity in all fronts. And simultaneously, we had this whole, you know, developing global uh, geostrategic shift that, you know, was something none of us had seen in our lifetime, including the fall of the Berlin Wall. And the you know the collapse of uh, dozens of communist countries, including the Soviet Union, uh, and the um, the apparent you know uh, erosion or uh, end of uh, Cold War tensions um, between you know East and West. And so it was like a a really uh, sensitive and defining moment. Something that that really, in my view. Uh, you know, still hasn't really been properly celebrated as an American victory, not just a victory uh, for uh, people of the world, though it clearly is that, but a victory for the United States, who committed so much, really, to uh, to that cause from, uh, you know, the end of the World War II, uh, really until the collapse of, of the Soviet Union. We are with Michael... Vietnam, Korea, etc. Yeah, we are with Michael Johns, and he is a former White House speechwriter, and and much more. I mean, his uh, his resume is is un- unbelievable. Really, a very impressive resume, Michael. And uh, I appreciate you sharing some of these insights with us. Now, Lee Atwater is somebody that I was always fascinated with. Did you get a chance to work with Atwater at all? Yeah, I, I actually Lee Atwater is someone that I knew. Uh, I knew him uh, both. Uh, before, both while he was at the RNC, and then I knew him uh, in the final days when he struggled with a horrible uh, brain uh, tumor that ultimately took his life. Um, and 
you know, I had an opportunity to have a good number of conversations with him about political dynamics of the country, and he was uh, a really a vast um, expert, I think, on the dynamics of American politics and the geography of American politics, meaning the, the sentiments that are, you know, distinct between the North and the West and the South and how, um, you know, th- there's thematic issues that resonate and do not resonate in certain areas of the country. I would say, you know, even though he was viewed as a very hardball political figure, and he was, I mean, and there were, you know, he had counterparts on the other side as well, so he wasn't unique to him. One thing I would say about Lee Atwater was, he knew the United States of America as well as anyone that I ever encountered in Washington. And that was really one of his great assets, I think, as he, uh, you know, went about, you know, ultimately assuming the highest political position in the Republican Party. Well, yeah, there's no question about that. And and also, I, I felt when Lee Atwater became ill with, with the cancer, I, I think Bush lost something politically. And I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there on the inside. I was a young young man just watching it on on CNN, like like many other people. But I, I think there were there were several things that happened. And when did Atwater die? Do you know exactly when? Ninety one, early ninety one. Yeah, ninety one. So it was right. It was soon after uh, uh, the Gulf War uh, ended. Right. I mean, he uh, right. passed away. And you know, Bush's numbers were through the roof, uh, and he had done. An incredible job of, of putting together a coalition. It was our first war since Vietnam, and I think a lot of people appreciated the fact. A lot of folks appreciated the fact that that uh, that President Bush called it a war as as opposed to a conflict. And I, I right. thought I thought he really. I mean, I can't imagine anybody doing a better job of keeping those diverse groups and those complicated situations. Aside and just a model, really. I think a model, really, of how you would define a military campaign. Because I mean, when he went into it, uh, well, firstly, you can recall the 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 opening line uh, issued by the then White House press secretary that uh, the liberation of Kuwait has begun. I mean, the, so the yeah. the the de- the definition of the outcome was so clearly defined that this is what we were going to go do that we were going to be successful, that there were going to be costs that the American people would incur as a result of this, and this is why it need to, needed to uh, happen. And I think in many of our military engagements since the Gulf War, we have failed to uh, properly define uh, military engagements in that level of, with that level of specificity. And whenever you kit, commit the uh, lives of American youth to uh, uh, a security interest of the United States. I think you owe that to the American people, and I think uh, President Bush really did probably as good of a job as, you know, really since World War II as has ever been done in that respect. Michael Johns, former White House speechwriter, and and much more is our special guest today. And uh, Michael, what I was uh, leading up to with with Atwater when when Atwater passed, it seemed like Bush lost a, a little something, and that's not a slam at at, at uh, James Baker. And again, I I wasn't there; I don't know. But even when it came down to the the question of are we in a recession, <laughs> I I personally think, and and I'm just totally speculating on this, that at some point Atwater would have had him say, 
yes, we're in a recession. The whole world's in a recession. Let's let let's get together. Let's uh, let's stick together, and we'll fight our way out of it. I think the denial that there was a uh, a recession at that point uh, hurt him. And then, of course, Ross Perot peeled a bunch of votes from uh, um, uh, you know from him. And I, I you know I, I believe, and I think uh, certainly President Clinton. Um, well, you know, and I agree with you completely about that because. You know, I mean, I, I major in economics. Um, anyone who has, I assume, even taken one course in economics knows that a recession is not a subjective uh, word. I mean, it is a very concrete economic definition of two consecutive economic quarters in which you have an economic downturn. And there was no doubt that that exactly had occurred. So, you know, the the, uh, the fact that recession was turned into a political phrase was 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 unfortunate. And, you know, in many respects, uh, I think it hurt the political agenda of the administration at the time because there was a strong case to be made for tax relief at that time because we were in a recession for job production and employment and growth. And in some ways, that was stifled in many ways by not admitting the obvious dilemma that we're in, uh, which was largely a cyclical recession, the likes of which have routinely occurred in the United States, not to the magnitude that we're experiencing now or have been experiencing since 2008, but had historically existed, you know, usually twice a generation. We're speaking with Michael Johns, former White House speak, uh, speechwriter uh, to George Herbert Walker Bush. And and it actually it, it brings up an interesting uh, segue. I mean, I had gotten involved politically uh, at the lower levels with uh, with Perot when Perot uh, emerged and and I believe, I, I certainly believe that that Perot had something to do with uh, peeling votes away from uh, Clinton. And by the way, I mean I won't tell tales out of school, but I you know I've gotten to know uh, both President Clinton and uh, and, and um, Madam Secretary uh, uh, Hillary Clinton well enough where I've brought up that conversation. And I don't know that either one of them uh, would uh, would honestly disagree with uh, the idea that. I, and I don't care what they say publicly, but I, I don't believe they would they would disagree that Perot helped them in that that race. Now, first of all, I'll ask you the same question. And then second, secondly, I know you're involved with the, the modern Tea Party movement and you were one of the founders of that. Um, yes. Uh, do you do you fear that the uh, that the Tea Party movement will do to Republicans what Ross Perot may have done? to George Herbert Walker Bush, and that means costing elections. I am in the camp, and I think most members of the Tea Party movement are in the camp that um, they, you can have a battle for the definition of the Republican Party without decimating the Republican Party. Uh, so I am an opponent, uh, as I believe most members of the Tea Party are, of any third-party candidacy coming out of the Tea Party movement. My view is that if the Tea Party movement cannot be successful in taking over uh, or at least allowing its principles to guide the Republican Party, as it often does, um, then you know we're not going to have any success, obviously, in, in being able to govern the country. So it's kind of like, you know, here's step one, here's step two. And step one is to really uh, go back. I think if you look at the Republican platform that's passed every four years, it's largely a conservative document that the Tea Party movement is would be comfortable with. And the point is just to say, hey, look, in this modern age, 
political parties have to have some definition or consequence, so why have them, right? I mean, uh, we have them in theory because those who are a member of them adhere to some set of principles. Well, one of those sets of principles is lower taxes, uh, limited government, respect for our Constitution, to the extent, extent those principles end up being compromised, not just in the country, but within the Republican Party itself, you start to dilute the entire process of political parties, and I think the question becomes, like, why even have them? Um, the Ross Perot candidacy in 92, I tend to feel that the vast majority of his uh, votes came out of President Bush's uh, camp. Some came out of Clinton's, but I think the vast majority out of Bush's. And, you know, it could well have been a deciding factor. In, uh, in that yeah. election. Well, yeah, I, I certainly agree. We, we have about a minute left with Michael Johns. Uh, Michael, what what do you want to tell us about the your next year here? What are you working on? I know you're working on some well, books. Big, I think the biggest issue you know, happening right now um, is this Tea Party movement, and that is that, um, you know, it, it has, it, I don't know if it's been really fully appreciated by, by Americans, but uh, you know, the Tea Party movement at one point, when it was just a few years in, like 2010, like really into its second year, had political popularity levels that really did rival both political parties. That's how the whole speculation began, that it, that it would emerge as a party, which it never was intended to be. Um, the reality, of course, is that in its 2010 um, off-year congressional victories in the House of Representatives, it was largely uh, – the, really the exclusive and predominant factor, I think, in holding this administration's uh, more extremist elements at bay, meaning the the agenda, uh, the progressive uh, agenda, which I believe has been damaging to this country in so many ways um, in its current state, would be vastly greater had the Tea Party movement not been as engaged and politically successful in 2010. Um, clearly, 2012, it did, you know, I mean, there wasn't, they were not, and we were not as consequential as we could have been or should have been for a bunch of reasons. Uh, and I think you're now coming up against a 2014 race, and a lot of respects is going to kind of just define the political culture of the next decade, I believe, you know, meaning that, uh, you know, clearly Republicans, I think if they hope to have a chance of reclaiming the presidency, if they hope to be successful in selling their ideas, should be able to reclaim the, the U.S. Senate. And um, that's something that the Tea Party movement, I think to your point earlier, needs to be focused on that goal. How do, how can that happen? You know, how can, how can the party reclaim uh, um, the U.S. Senate and be in a position that it can actually you know, House and Senate work uh, collaboratively in pursuit of uh, liberty-minded, growth-minded um, legislation. Michael Michael Johns has been our guest. Michael, I appreciate it, and we need a part two or a part three to get uh, to get into this. We got into so much of your career and so much of the past. We got to talk about the the current uh, situation and the and the future the next time we speak. Michael Johns. A former White House speech, uh, speechwriter has been our guest, has been our guest. And Michael, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Frank. We'll be back right after this.